0: Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Neherne.
1: We need civil disobedience, effective civilian politics more now than we ever did because we're in a lot of trouble and our politicians are not getting us out of it. Unjust laws have never stopped people from taking the kind of action that they need to.
0: Unjust laws seem to be essential to protect the interests of mining capitalists. Governments around the country are ratcheting up legal repression and their police are dialing up the violence. On today's show, we hear about Queensland's new anti lock on laws. Then we go down to Melbourne for a report back on Blockade I and the violent police response. Andy Payne is a member of Frontline Action on Coal. I spoke to him on the phone from the anti Downey protest camp near Bowen in central Queensland. I started by asking Andy about the new anti-protest laws that Queensland Labor have introduced.
1: Yes, yeah, so the Queensland Parliament has just uh, rushed through and approved what they're calling the dangerous attachment to laws, um, which are designed to outlaw the use of lock-on devices of the type that are sometimes used by environmental activists. Uh, lock-on plates and concrete barrels, uh, and also mentioned monopoles and tripods. So these devices have been used for a long time to uh, make activists hard to remove from places where we're disrupting work. Uh, and the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, uh, made an accusation that activists were using them to try to harm police officers by hiding uh what she called booby traps in these devices and use that as justification to rush through a law uh, that makes the possession or use of a lock-on device into an imprisonable offence and that gives police new stop-and-search powers.
0: So quite wide-ranging legislation. Anastasia Palaszczuk uh, stated that, oh, well, the Greens were criticising her from the left and the Liberal National uh, Opposition were uh, trying to add uh, even more wide-ranging amendments and were criticising her from the right. And so she said, well, obviously what we're doing is a sensible centre. But they seem quite concerning, these laws. Can we kind of get into more of what they actually cover and, and what um, what current protests they could actually affect?
1: Yeah, well, the most concerning thing about the laws really is that they're based on a lie. And a of Palaszczuk just blatantly lied to uh, the people of Queensland and to the Parliament about the intention of these laws by saying that these devices were used to... Uh, and were designed to injure police officers and police rescue personnel, which is just not the case, and she never produced any evidence to back that up. No incidences of people uh, being charged for injuring police officers or that being reported in the media. No photo evidence of claims that there were butane canisters. And so um, the, the real concerning thing here is that to rush through a law, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk, would happily lie to the public and also then bypass normal parliamentary procedure by saying that she wanted the um, hearings kind of brought forward and uh, the law brought in as quickly as possible. And so this is really a a political move uh, because Labour in Queensland following the federal election is in a pretty tricky spot. Um, They face pressure from within their own party about being stronger on climate change and face from the people of Queensland who, it has been said, uh, voted against Labour in the federal election because of the Adani mine. And so to come up with a political solution to this, she's demonised environmental protesters and lied to the public. So, I mean, that's a really concerning thing. Um, beyond that, I guess the, the tradition of environmental civil disobedience using lock-on devices is one that in Australia has a proud history, Uh, It can go back a long way to women activists through the 20th century chaining themselves to places where women were not supposed to be, whether it be parliament or men-only bars or the court, Um, and more recently environmental activists um, immobilising machines that are doing destructive work, and that's often been vindicated by uh, victories in those campaigns that were hard-fought and using lock-on devices and now these things have been turned into uh, something that is criminalised just by being an object.
0: Where do you think this push to change the legislation has come from? You, you have indicated one, uh, one imperative, which is state Labor feeling pretty worried about their uh, electoral prospects after the federal election. But what, uh, there's been indications in the media that pressure for this legislation could have also come from mining lobby uh, and also from the privatised rail company Horizon, who are going to be uh, transporting the coal from, from the potential Adani mine. Are there, are there other players? Where is this pressure coming from?
1: Yeah, I think another one that you haven't mentioned there is the Murdoch media, which in Queensland holds a virtual monopoly on print papers. And so they've been very uh, hysterical about environmental protests, especially Extinction Rebellion protesters in Brisbane, but also some of the uh, anti-Adani protests up here. And so that's an element of pressure as well. And, yeah, the mining lobby, obviously, immensely powerful, especially in Queensland. The CEO of the Queensland Resources Council is Ian McFarlane, who was a former federal minister in the Howard government and he's a a powerful political figure and in the the cabinet hearings about these laws for drafting this legislation, Ian McFarling was present there um, giving instructions about these devices and there were no environmental organizations present any uh, human rights groups uh, rejected the idea that the Queensland government had done any kind of exhaustive consultation with them and so the mining lobby's fingers are all over this, including the, some of the use of terminology calling the devices sleeping dragons and dragon's den, which is something the mining lobby has used as a tactic. Nobody calls those devices by those names. They're lock-on pipes, concrete barrels, but this is the, the public relations campaign of the mining lobby, and the fact that it's now written in legislation it just leaves their cold, blackened fingerprints all over it.
0: So we've talked about some of the forces behind the push for this legislation. On the other side, opposing this new draconian anti-protest legislation, there seems to be quite a broad coalition from your uh, human rights and civil society groups to trade unions, and as well as, of course, environmental organisations. What do you think is needed to defeat these new laws?
1: Yeah, well, the laws have been rushed through and... Um parliamentary process not really followed, and so I think if people within Anastasia Palaszczuk's own party had shown a bit of backbone, they could have demanded that the that process be properly followed. Um, they didn't do that, and so these laws have just been passed and will very shortly be uh, active, and so at this point it's a, a bit of a struggle to work out how to get rid of these laws and win back our our right to protest and win back the, I guess, the reputation of these lock-on devices which have done so much for our environment over the years. I think we have a, a recent precedent um, in Tasmania where there were anti-protest laws brought about and a couple of people, Bob Brown and Jessica Hoyt, uh, broke those laws and then took it to the High Court on constitutional grounds and won, and that law was scrapped. And so... That's certainly a possibility. It would mean a a long and complicated legal challenge, but I think these kind of things should be done because we can't just let governments uh, abuse our system to bring in unjust laws because it serves their political purposes.
0: It's quite a critical time for political protest uh, internationally, in Australia and in Queensland uh, especially. You mentioned the Extinction Rebellion uh, protests that have been happening, mostly in Brisbane, but then, of of course, also the campaign to stop the Adani mine. What is going to happen to activists who choose to use lock-ons that have now been criminalised by this new law?
1: Yeah, I think it is a very key time. I think this is one of the things that uh, we've been communicating is that we are in a climate emergency and that is the real threat to safety. You know, talking about dangerous attachment devices, an inanimate steel pipe is not dangerous. Uh, a climate emergency is something that has a, a immense threat to health and uh, safety of people around the world. And not only that, but we have governments that have just for a long time now proven unable or unwilling to do, to take the steps needed to fix this climate emergency and so we need civil disobedience effective civilian uh, politics more now than we ever did because we're in a lot of trouble and our politicians are not getting us out of it and so I think uh, civil disobedience actions need to continue as part of a mass movement to try to uh, stop the fossil fuel lobby and try to restructure our society in a way that is sustainable. And so they will continue, and people will continue to lock onto things. And um, unjust laws have never stopped people from taking the kind of action that they need to around the world. Right now, you can look at very repressive regimes this year have faced massive, effective, nonviolent protests, and through history, all kinds of um, tyrannical regimes have been brought down by movements of ordinary people and so uh, that's what will keep happening and I think the, the threat of a prison term or a fine will not be enough to deter people standing up for what's right.
0: Andy, do you want to give a plug for what Frontline Action on Coal are currently doing and anything else that we might not have covered so far?
1: Yeah, so Frontline Action on Coal, we're up here keeping an eye on Adani and what they're doing. Of course there's been a a massive campaign over the last five years against the Adani mine in Australia. Um, That mine now has government approvals and is starting work on construction. At the moment, they've done a little bit of land clearing for some of their dewatering bores and to start constructing their dewatering dam, as well as they're doing a little bit of testing of where they will likely clear their rail line. And so we're keeping an eye on them and we're getting out there and stopping them doing that work where we can, and there's been a number of incidents of civil disobedience in the last few months up here, as well as targeting some of the contractors up here who will be doing a lot of that work. And so we'll keep doing that. Um, you can follow Frontline Action on call, uh, on Facebook or Twitter, or on our website, frontlineaction.org. And if people want to come up here, And join us. We're just near Bowen in central Queensland and people are welcome to come up, uh, stay here for a while and get involved in a movement to try to stop the Adani mine before it's too late.
0: Andy Payne from Frontline Action on Coal. Last week of October saw mining companies, their financiers and government lackeys descend on Melbourne for the International Mining and Resources Conference, IMARC. There to meet them was a broad coalition of protesters who picketed the conference seeking to disrupt business as usual. Apsara is a spokesperson for the Blockade IMARC Alliance, and I spoke to her on the phone from the last day of the protest.
2: So we were able to, uh, you know, uh, slow down the entrance of um, the executives who were meant to be going into the conference, which I think uh, meant that not as many people uh, attended the conference. And, uh, you know, we got to hear from a number of Speakers, So, so, you know, a a whole range of First Nation speakers from the Northern Territory um, who are on the front lines. We had Eritrean speakers come and talk about what's happening there, Um, and uh, then we had West Hopper speakers, uh, some uh, people from the Philippines and Philippine solidarity uh, who were able to speak about uh, what's happening in the Philippines, as well as uh, South American activists. So really, uh, not only did the people attending the blockade get to engage in a blockade, but actually learn stories from First Nations peoples and people of colour. So we were amplifying their voices and enabling them to share their stories. And I think that's a very important part of the climate movement, is that we need to do that, Uh, put the uh, um, the, uh, voices... uh, centre the voices of First Nations and um, uh, people of colour and really make their voices uh, central to uh, moving the uh, the movement forward. I think we achieved that goal. And I think the last part of that question that you asked was uh, police brutality. Um, it was really over the top. Uh, I cannot tell you how scary it was being on the front line and um, the tactics that the police used were... were Pretty. Uh, it was well coordinated. This was not something that uh, they, uh, you know, on the day decided that that was the action they were going to take. It was something that they had planned, and they were going to use brute force on um, many on many of the uh, activists. And it's the scary part of that is there were a lot of activists who have never been on the front line, so for them it was quite confronting.
0: Picking up there on the police response to the. Uh, peaceful picket that you were staging with Blockade IMARK. Now there was some mainstream media coverage uh, w- which really fell into the uh, bad old trope of violence uh, from protesters or clashes on both sides. For people who weren't there, can you give us just a bit more of a description in terms of what were the police tactics used? You know, there was chemical yes. weapons, there was yep. batons. Tell us more Definitely. about that.
2: Definitely. So uh, it was the use of horses, uh, as you said, um, uh, the use of uh, pepper spray um, and the indiscriminate spraying of the pepper spray as well. Um, uh, And then um, uh, this kind of uh, where they would actually link arms themselves and they would be three or four deep and literally be pushing um uh blockaders as well, so there was a, the use of physical force uh, and then uh the batter uh, and then the did come out in on occasion as well so um if you were to say we did experience the full force of the uh of uh the police uh, the, uh, of victoria police yeah. One of the things that the blockade I mark, you know, what I think has been really uh, great about it is, even though there's there's going to be a lot of trauma, is has been the fact that we were able to, you know, as a, a small but uh, vocal blockade. Uh, draw attention both here in Australia and around the world about the fact that these mining companies some of these companies that are uh, here at Blockade AMI account for like 16% of uh, carbon emissions they are also labour rights violators, they are, um, you know, they are well known for doing everything possible to store sovereignty for First Nations people, you know, stealing First Nations people's lands and all these kind of things and I think it is um, you know, uh, something that I think we need to also celebrate is that we were able to be so effective to get this message out to the rest of the world. In Standing in solidarity with a lot of these communities who are fighting every day, but they don't have the media seeing what's happening there. So we were able to draw some of that attention as well.
0: Monitoring the police violence towards the protesters at IMARC was the Melbourne Activist Legal Support Group, MALS. Julia Dem was a legal observer for MALS, and I asked her to describe what she observed on the first day of the protest.
3: Things there got quite hectic quite early on. So already um, registration was opening at 8 and already before 8am in the morning we were seeing excessive use of police force in a couple of different ways. So we saw um, protesters had linked arms and were attempting to um, blockade some of the main entrances of the convention centre and we saw... Um police, regular police as well as police from the public order response team or port really physically grabbing and shoving pro, um protesters um, at times with such force that they were propelled to the ground, um, at times pushing protesters down concrete stairs. Um legal observers um witnessed um injuries of protesters, including one protester thrown into cement wall and hit the back of his head. We also saw a lot of um, police using sort of snatch squad tactics um, of four to eight police officers targeting particular individuals, grabbing them, tackling to them to the ground at times of excessive force as well. And it appeared, or some of the organisers felt like they were being individually targeted by police. So at times it was someone on a megaphone who would then be targeted by this sort of snatch squad. Um, then as the day progressed, we also saw police horses being used as a form of crowd control. So there were multiple injuries. Um, one activist around 8 a.m. in the morning had to be taken off to hospital, with suspected broken bones. My understanding was that the bones weren't broken, but the point is they easily could have been because this sort of form of using horses um, as a form of crowd control is inherently dangerous. Um, the horses were visibly spooked by the protests, and because of that, Melis has a really strong position that Victoria Police should immediately withdraw the mounted unit from any crowded areas and prohibit it from use um, at protests and at all subsequent days at the IMAC. Unfortunately, that's not what we saw. We saw horses continuing to be used as crowd control on the subsequent days as well. Later in the day, we also saw capsicum spray and police batons being used against um, protesters um and that was used against crowds that were being loud and non-compliant, but were not posing any threat. Particularly on the Wednesday, we saw police using OC spray, and Mel's has done a quite detailed analysis of this incident. And the crowd there was being non-compliant, but again, was not posing any threat. Um, and then there's even as people were turned away and were trying to leave the scene and were already visibly affected by the OC spray, further um, OC spray was directed at them and then another burst was directed at people who were already on the ground and struggling to get up and affected by the spray. This goes against the police's own guidelines which specify really clearly that OC spray should only be used when there's a violent confrontation or there's an imminent threat of violence. And they state explicitly that OC spray should not be used in situations where someone is just passively resisting. Um, and so it appears that in these cases, OC spray was used to ensure compliance with police directions, but not to address a threat. And in these circumstances, we believe it's um, probably unlawful in that use of um, in that use of force.
0: Can you tell me a bit more about the work that Melbourne Activists Legal Support does? and, uh, you know, the role at big protests like Blockade i
3: Yeah, sure. So Melbourne Activist Legal Support has been around for quite a while now, sort of coming out of the um, Occupy protests in 2011, and we run trainings for people to be trained legal observers. All legal observers who are part of the MELS team are clearly identifiable by the pink vests that we wear, and our main focus is really monitoring and documenting Incidents of police violence, and tracking this sort of over time, and sort of, to, and then educating people about our legal rights um, in Victoria under the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. Our rights to protest are clearly enshrined in law. We have the rights to freedom of assembly and freedom of expression, and so we see that having legal observers there is a way of facilitating people exercising those rights to um, to protest. And so we want to educate people about our legal rights and also educate people about what steps they can take to um, putting complaints against police if there is, um, you know, police misconduct or excessive use of force. In some cases, MELS also provides ongoing um, support in cases where people have been arrested as part of protests. For IMAX, they've got their own legal support team that is following up and supporting arrestees um, from this event.
0: So after an event like Blockade, IMARC, Melbourne Activist Legal Support uh, writes up a a summary or opinion and what what happens next or what what do you do after an event like this?
3: Yeah, so on Tuesday after the first day of IMARC, we put out what we called a preliminary statement of concern about the policing of the protests, identifying some of the um, things that we saw, the excessive use of police force and um, articulating our concerns about this. Um, I suspect there'll be a plan to do a more detailed statement of concern now that the entire IMIC event is over and also to try and collate footage. There's a lot of footage that's been circulated um, on social media um, that was taken by people at the protest to collate that evidence of the police excessive use of force and um, police misconduct and to support people um, during, you know, what comes next, if that might involve um, complaints against police um, and supporting people who have been arrested. If you were affected by police misconduct, do make sure that you get the support that you need to debrief after an event like this. You often need, like there's often a need for um, debriefing, um, you know, psychological, emotional sort of first aid as well as any physical um, first aid and to also, if you've got footage, to um, send us an email, get in touch and we'll try and follow up on all those matters.
0: Julia Dem from MALS. Go to melbourneactivistlegalsupport.org for resources or follow them on social media. And if you'd like to know the latest on supporting those who attended the Blockade iMark picket, you can search for Blockade iMark online, on Facebook or on Twitter. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Naherne. The song featured on today's show is Police Brutality by Combat Wombat. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr. dot org. dot au forward slash Earth Matters, or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR. On Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3 cr And don't forget to check out our Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. <laughs>